Welcome to the first episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and I'm joined today by Caroline Grindrod of Roots of Nature for a discussion all about regenerative agriculture. I've started with this topic because farming provides us with food. And since we're all having to shovel something into our mouths every day, food choices are probably one of our biggest powers as consumers when it comes to having an impact on the world around us. And it can get confusing. We walk into a shop and everything's nicely packaged to grab our attention. But there's little info there for us to really engage with where it's coming from or how it's produced. And once we add in a bit of greenwashing along with pressures on us to make the right choices by the climate and nutrition and welfare, this really can become one of our most overwhelming choices too. To get a better understanding, we need a broader point of view. Producing a vegetable, for example, could cause harm to the planet. And producing a steak could actually help to heal it. But then the exact same could be said in reverse. Which is why we need a new way to communicate all of this. And I'm so thrilled that Caroline was able to come and share so much insight and knowledge with us. We discuss what it means to take a shift towards a more holistic mindset and why that's important before exploring why regenerative agriculture is helpful to the climate and ecosystems, why it's actually better for our bodies too, and in the long term, better for the stability of that food on our shelves. We tend to go into a lot of depth in these discussions, so if you'd like to get the gist of some of the concepts more quickly, then have a look at the animations over on the website too. That's wearecarbon.earth forward slash animations. And remember to sign up while you're there if you'd like to stay up to date with new content. Right, so let's get stuck in. Good morning, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have you here to discuss all of your work, which is actually very varied. You've got a lot of businesses in various different disciplines, but they're all tied together with this it seems like a, a deep desire that you have to connect together the needs of society and people with nature in a finer balance and more harmony. So I wonder if before we begin, if you could just introduce and give a little bit of background to yourself and your work. Oh, thanks ever so much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, happy to to give you a bit of an introduction, I guess. I There's, there's just sort of common threads that run through my work. And I've I've been lucky enough or I've just allowed myself to kind of follow my passions and and sort of go with the flow in whatever my circumstances, you know, whichever direction the circumstances took me. So I've, I've just sort of gone through life and I started off with a real deep passion for the environment and animal welfare. And that was sort of, a, I guess, a kicking off point. Um, and then I became a ranger and um, went into sort of environmental science um and kind of develop my land management work and just understanding of how ecosystems function through that and then married into farming I guess and sort of became quite passionate about farming in a very conventional sense and then gradually that sort of rolled into an opportunity with my now ex-husband in the Lake District as, as as a farm tenant to explore what what does nature friendly farming look like and at the time we were sort of pioneering a lot of the early conservation farming, you might want to call it, where we were using animals as a tool to achieve conservation aims and, um, you know, improve habitats and that sort of thing. 
Um, and then I, we, we sort of went our separate ways. And at the same time, I developed a real sort of deep passion and understanding for sustainability and food and how it all fits together and how we can influence what happens on the land. And um, I started a meat business called Primal Meats. And that was really to try and support in any way I could the farming that I felt was the best at the time, which is 100% grass-fed, produced, organic um, meat products. So that's an online business and, and that's been that's still still going now as a way of sort of um, influencing from the citizen end what can happen in these in these supply webs. And at the same time, then discovered Alan Savory's work. And at the time, it was sort of early in the UK, they opened a hub and I was their first trainee. So I then sort of went on to explore, became a professional in through the Savory Institute and really wanted to explore what does that look like in the uplands of the UK. That's something that's been done widely. Regenerative agriculture is sort of relatively widely known across the drylands, but in these very forgiving climates, these moist climates, what does it look like here? We've got cultural, very specific cultural context, particularly in the hilly regions and the uplands. Um, so I developed methods and projects to explore what that looked like and and, and further kind of um, – and not refine, but adapt the the way that we apply the the holistic framework here with my background in conservation and understanding of of the people here. Um, we developed uh, an organisation called Wilder Culture, and that's a community interest company. It's a not for profit where we are, yeah, training, uh, applying these principles and, and in bespoke environment, you know, bespoke ways in different environments in the uplands. Um, and, and we're calling it sort of a hybrid of rewilding and regenerative grazing. So we've got a sort of, of the, the, the theme throughout all of that is that regenerate ecosystems, improve the welfare of animals, improve the health of people. And it's just ended up being a very sort of wavy route <laughs> that I've been on to get here. But it's just be, when you look back across that period of time, you think, well, actually, that's exactly what I needed at that point in in my life to kind of have that understanding from that different angle and and the kind of I guess the um yeah the whole that that is created is is my current work which is um sort of the umbrella organization is Roots of Nature that's my consultancy and I, I now sort of through different means work with um our meat organization obviously to try and help find farmers a way to sell their amazing product that they produce through these regenerative systems I also am a consultant with farmers and big landowners and estates in Scotland, particularly. How do we actually, how do we turn a, a fairly conventional farming or estate management system into a regenerative one and make it profitable and also embrace some of the cultural elements of, you know, our heritage? Um, and yeah, so that that's sort of where I've ended up. <laughs> Fantastic. It's um, well, it's a wonderful, very, very exciting story. I, I have so many questions for you. I've had to sort of tailor myself back because I find your work so incredibly interesting um, and your journey that you've gone through to, to, to sort of push you in all of these different directions. But I think when we talk about regenerative agriculture in general, there's something here that's such a stark contrast to the way that we go about things in the modern world, which is to divide things up. This is our norm today is to separate them out. And I suppose a lot of that is for simplicity, but we put things into boxes. So we look at looking after nature as a separate exercise to looking after the um, 
food production you know the uh, how how to create food for a, a a growing society is a separate interest to looking after nature and then when we look sort of more deeply into farming itself we separate again and we separate the livestock from the crop production and this seems to be an endless story and it also seems to be part of what's failing us and I wonder if you could put some thoughts onto that for us. Yeah absolutely you've you've hit the nail on the head and I think that is the underlying cause of all of the issues now and and actually through this winding journey of mine I've kind of evolved my own way of thinking about things and, and I guess perhaps they broadened out my thinking so you know, I now consider myself a holistic thinker or a systems thinker, somebody that can embrace complexity. And I think actually that's where where our problems lie in in society is that um, if you follow the work of Don Beck and uh, others, uh, Ken Wilbur, you know, there's this concept of the human emergence models and the fact that you know, the way that they frame it is that everybody goes through these different worldviews through life, and that's very normal and natural. And at different stages, you look at the world in a different way, and and then gradually you sort of incorporate all of those different um, stages once you've gone through into a more holistic perspective. This is sort of a big leap. You Something happens in your life or you have a big transition, and then, or often in regenerative farming, people have a, a complete collapse of something happens, you know, a, a hailstorm wipes out all of their profits and something changes significantly in their life that means that they can look at things differently. And then they are often able to sort of completely embrace all of these different stages and worldviews that they've been through. And that's where I would consider the, that, we, you know, where we have a more holistic way of looking at things and we can incorporate a, a range of different methods and, and, and ways of doing and thinking. But the problem is that a lot of society is still very, very heavily um, influenced or, or their worldview is sort of dominated by this very rational mindset. So we think of everything in terms of, you know, machines and mechan- in a mechanistic way, a very rational way, a very scientific way, uh, and, and reductionist science where we separate and study everything in individual parts to understand it better. And that's perfectly acceptable in kind of maths and engineering and those sorts of disciplines. But when it comes to living systems, where, whether it's health of your body, the human health, or whether it's health of a, an ecosystem, then it, it doesn't serve as well. In fact, it can be extremely detrimental because those systems, unlike a complicated system, are extremely good at complicated in our modern society where we can study, um, we can make incredibly complicated bits of machinery and, and we can follow instructions. But those complicated um, whether it's a computer program or a train or whatever, um, they are they run. They have parts that all work together, and if something breaks, you can replace that part, and it will it will run again. Whereas a living system is adaptive and emergent and self organizing. So, if you lose a species from that an ecosystem, it will kind of accommodate, and something else will move into that niche and take over, so that the whole system continues to function. And in our bodies, the same thing happens. Um, and of course you know, modern health science, I suppose, that is, is much more focused on biology now, instead of thinking of the human as a machine. So we're understanding that better, but we're still trapped in this rational mindset and worldview. And um, as I say, it, the problem is that when you're trying to use prescriptions and rules and templates for something that is self-organizing, then we we get it badly wrong. And I believe that's kind of at the root cause of, of where we are with modern agriculture. Is we've, we've assumed that if you add A to B, you'll get the same, you know, you'll get a certain result. Um, and we use prescriptions in 
um, managing the land. We have, you know, very clever people that can come and tell you how much fertilizer to put on and how much weight gain you'll get in your lambs and what medication to use if you get a certain disease. And we assume that we're going to get repeatable results um, and that everything's, everything's the same. And it's not, you know, the land is different. The history of the land is different. The people involved in managing the land are unique we've got you know genetics and epigenetics now the science of that is just fascinating and it changes everything so you know the fact that our environment switches genes on and off which means that ultimately we're we're dealing with animals and people that are completely unique and we can't possibly assume that we're going to get the same results um you know with the same inputs if you like so we need a different way of managing that uh, complexity and we sort of in our work, we work with principles. So we have overarching principles and then we assume and train the farmers themselves so that they can apply those principles in the way that's most appropriate for them in their unique context. And that's a very different way of working. And of course, holistic health practitioners are doing that to some degree too. They're, you know, again, and it's way beyond just having a health issue and then fixing it with a less toxic um, response. It's about why we're we getting these health issues. You know, what are we doing in our lives and our uh, modern agriculture that's creating so many of these symptoms that we're treating and spending so much time treating when actually we need to be looking at, you know, the root cause. Why, why, why are we getting so many of these problems in the first place? So, yeah, so I believe it's the paradigm that's holding us back and, and causing the issues. And, and, but what's great is we're seeing a shift through those paradigms and we're now moving into, you know, more, um, green memes and more and more people are kind of waking up to this this wider more co- way of working with complexity so that's an encouraging sign yes yes it certainly is and this is what it all comes down to really is that the mindset has to be different the approach has to be as you've said more complex in many ways and that complexity in the long run probably offers simplicity uh, when when the whole system is working together, but this is there's an awful lot of having to explore relationships between things rather than separating them out. And your work certainly you're looking at the relationships that a lot of other people aren't looking at, and this they're varied. You're not just looking at creating food. There's there's many things that you're taking into account that the land can be used for. So I wondered if we could look at how those relationships that you're working with how they vary and what you're exploring so I've I've kind of made a few examples you're looking at nature and its relationship with food production you're looking at conservation of the land but also how we can use that land for our own recreation and cultural uses and then there's the the links between food production and human health and as we say this there's you, you can see this is a big picture that's forming there's an awful lot of complexity that's being taken into account um but i wondered if you could just sort of touch on a few of those relationships and uh what you found in your work to um to to be some common threads between them all yeah absolutely and i suppose wilderculture is a is a good place to start and I think holistic management was so appealing to me and and using the framework that is holistic management. So again, it's back to this, when you're managing complexity, you can't rely on rules and prescriptions and you you don't get repeatable outcomes. So you have to rely on these principles and we have methods and decision-making protocols, which helps you kind of allow 
the evolution of what you're working with, you know, without nailing it down. So the framework is is really works really well. And and ultimately at the core of that is the fact that you've got to consider people as part of your management. So we've been trying to manage land for a very long time and assuming that we can just impose rules on it and we'll get results. And of course it doesn't work because ultimately if you don't consider the people that are running it or the needs of society as a whole, um, it doesn't work. It's not truly sustainable because the people give up on it or you know there's no output market for it or, or whatever it is so we have to consider the the social as part of our kind of what we call the triple bottom line um and, and the economics are tied to it as well so often in environmental work you are focused entirely on what environmental outcomes you can get without as i say considering maybe whether the people want to be doing that the farmers want to be doing it what they want for their lives or how does it pay the bills we're relying on subsidizing people paying them and compensating them but really ultimately the the true sustainable way of making money is to try and turn sunlight and you know natural resources like rainfall into a product that you can sell of course on top of that tourism and all of these other ways of making money you know and, and having a i'm no under no illusion that we'll ever be able to be free entirely from subsidies or environmental payments or whatever but we can certainly become more resilient and less reliant on those which makes people feel more secure and we can certainly consider what type of farming people want to do or is there specific breeds that they like or what elements of the heritage means an awful lot to them, you know, the haymaking, the community elements of farming. And we could try and bake that into something that, you know, is is truly holistic. And so in wildiculture, we try and do that. We look at the upland areas and we say, well, you know, in the dales, we've got hay meadows and field barns. In the in the lakes, we've got fell farming and herdwicks and, and all of this unique, really important cultural heritage that we shouldn't just bin um, but at the same time, we know that there's issues with the, the you know, the results we're getting. Modern farming has taken us down a path that's ended up us dealing with a lot of symptoms, creating a lot of our own problems, degrading soil and reducing biodiversity. So that has to that has to change because ultimately, if we're degrading the resource we rely upon for our own income, um, that's not sustainable for the families that are living there either. So there's a lot of work to be done, but just simply sort of blaming and, and then swinging to a, a purely environmental focused um, way of doing things, I don't believe is the way forward. So we try very hard to train the people involved in the projects and with the principles behind what we're trying to achieve. And then it's very much more of a coaching role that I have where I I support them and help them come up with a unique context for their individual situation which will incorporate whether it's you know game um some shooting and it will be very different we're not talking about sort of um managing a, a you know a grouse moor where you've got thousands of just one species that's that sort of anti um nature so we try and find more natural balanced ways of doing things where we can regenerate but also incorporate some of the cultural things that are really important to these people and similarly different breeds and different regions and, and how do we create a design of a, a grazing system in in the Lakeland fells that um, works when you're sharing a fell with many other commoners and, and you know, all of these complex issues that we have to try and, you know, uh, encompass in our, in our sort of uh, design. So, so very much we create the context which is incorporates, yeah, what do the people want? What does the community expect to some degree, or, you know, how do we make it pay and how do we get environmental regenerative outcomes? How do we increase biodiversity? How do we improve the watershed? How do we build soil so that we can make money from sunshine and water into the future forever and pass it on to our next generations? That's that's what we try and do. And as I say, that's really about relationships and 
and relationship building and coaching and an ongoing way of thinking. And if you just teach something for two or three days and then expect people to go away and then suddenly uh, be able to make that work with a when they're really what's required is a whole different paradigm then it just falls flat on its face. So what I've discovered is that an ongoing kind of coaching role is important where we have a weekly check-in and I can help them do decision-making, reframe the way they're looking at a problem and that that's the thing that actually is working the best. And and that could be the same in you know running a business or or anything. It's really about how do you look at these problems differently? How do you reframe things? So so yeah, and we're doing that very much. And as I say, the reason that we, we created World of Culture is because you can see that happening in the wider world as people are saying, oh, well, we need food production. We need food production to become more efficient so we can hand more land back to nature. And the problem is that nature doesn't stop at a fence. You know, nature requires a whole system. You, you can't just say, right, well, we're going to be really intensive there, use lots of fertilizer, lots of sprays, and then that's not going to impact nature elsewhere. We're, we're going to put that area over to, to those, you know, that in you know, uh, wild species. But those wild species need a clean environment and healthy watersheds and not to be killed by pesticides and to be able to migrate across land and, and have a shared ocean that's not polluted by fertilizers. So it just doesn't work that you can separate, separate and segregate nature and then be really efficient somewhere. And ultimately, that efficiency, you know, how long is that going to last? Is it not a false choice when you're pumping it full of things that are basically making you entirely reliant on synthetic very expensive fertilizers and and um, interventions that that's harming ultimately you know making you more and more reliant all the time on those in, inputs um how long is that going to last and produce those high yields so really i just think that we're buying a bit of time with that approach and ultimately we have to get to a point where we've got nature working completely everywhere and then what instead we are doing with our farming is that we're just replacing the crops or replacing the sorry the uh, the you know the elements of the the natural um ecosystem with something that we can eat or sell so ultimately we are seeing ourselves as part of the system rather than um outside of it and uh, and as i say working with these principles and these ecological principles that means that we can then get abundant output just running from natural inputs in terms of yeah rainfall healthy soil complex diverse systems that are regulating predators and we don't get booming and busting of populations that's causing us our diseases and all the things that we're spending a fortune trying to treat so i i see that we we've got to get to past that point and um so yeah in terms of sort of nature and food that's 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 very much where wilderculture came from yeah, and again, I suppose on the food and health side, again, you can't separate these things. We've been we've been trying to treat the symptoms for so long that we've we don't understand that we're part of the system. And ultimately, if you with this, the discoveries around the microbiome now and epigenetic expression, as I say, when you we now know that our environment is switching our genes on and off, and our diseases are being caused because of our environment realize that we are completely our environment. So we are what we are eating from wherever that has been grown and where we're living. And if our food is being imported from places where we're growing it in toxic soils and it doesn't have any of the natural ecosystem balancing it out or any of the nutrients coming from that soil food web achieved way of, of sort of the, you know, transferring those total pool of nutrients that are, are so many, so many, so many more that's available in, you know, these healthy soils, basically the soil food web is broken down. So the plant can only take up what's in this, in that, you know, immediate environment around its root zone. 
which is incredibly limited, but in a complex, healthy system, the plant is exuding sugars and communicating with the microbes that are absorbing a much wider range of nutrients out of the rock and the crystalline structures in the soil. So you can the plants are healthier. They've got this huge range of um, nutrients available to them, so they can build their own mechanisms of defense. They have the secondary metabolites in there that are incredibly healthy for us. Um, those plant chemicals you know, that we know are incredibly healthy for us that also keep our animals healthy. And that whole system works better because then we're not having to treat our animals with medications that are then obviously impacting our own health. And so, so in a healthy system, you know, our gut can be healthy. Our microbiome can be healthy. We're, we're our soil and uh, the, the, the soil of our gut, if you like, the organisms that are in our gut are the same things, you know, they're, they're just passing from one to the other. So if we, kill our soil and we don't take in those phytochemicals from those healthy plants then you know we're just going to get sick and rely more upon medication so the whole system works together and we are part of it which is no wonder we're seeing such huge health issues so so yeah when you truly see whole system function you can't separate those two things out and you could you know as i say we're importing so much of our our food without even knowing how it's grown at all so we've got a long way to go Yes. So essentially, it's very important for people to recognize that you can't compare one apple with another apple, for example. Everything is actually taking up such a nutritional value or a toxic load from the situation that it's grown in. And there's such importance on the health of the whole system as opposed to just producing this outcome, which is a massive produce. Absolutely. And um and same with meat, you know, we, we're now finding, again, you know, people talk about, oh, well, the science doesn't show this, but science is ever evolving. It's this, we've got this idea that the science is somehow conclusive now, but it's not, it's, you know, in five years time, we'll find all these things that we didn't know now. So that's the way science works. It's constantly catching up with reality. And, um, you know, this is why we try and work with principles. We can understand certain things, you know, in nature. We we know how nature has worked for a very long time, and it's been, um, you know, it's 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 looked after itself for a very long time. So we we need to sort of use those guidelines, if you like, rather than trying to completely understand and reduce every element of it. So yeah, we we you know we're understanding so much about the biological systems that we didn't know before, and. As you say, a, an apple that's grown from a tree with a healthy fungal network at its feet is going to be a very different apple to one that's grown in a chemical system. And, you know, if it's then shipped across the world and you're eating it out of its context and, and you know, again, your own environment, if you're living in a, in a stressful situation where you're drinking water with, you know, the, all the wrong stuff being put in it and you've got to, you know electric electromagnetic fields all around you and you're not getting into nature then your your own environment's going to be very different so how the apple then interacts with you and your gut microbiome will be completely unique and again we're not used to having to deal with that sort of level of complexity so i think ultimately if we're going to move forward with with human health we need to as you say um work with this whole system function to to get the benefit of that fantastic it's it's very exciting. I think that, like you've said, the science does not stand still and we have to really open to that. That's hugely important that we allow ourselves to keep learning because this is really transformational stuff and it could be incredibly important for the health of ourselves as well as for the environment. When it comes to the environment and climate change, we we sort of, we use the topic of agriculture as the big sinner 
often within all of this. Like agriculture causes the biggest amount of emissions or one of the largest amount of emissions. And this is a narrative that we're going to keep hearing. But I think it needs to be balanced because regenerative agriculture is actually one of the most healing things that we can do for the planet. And that is such a stark contrast that I do feel people need to engage with this a little more and understand the differences. So could you break it down for us a little bit? Some of the horror stories we hear about agriculture, why do they not apply to regenerative agriculture? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the way to start this is to talk about whole system and why it works for the climate. And if you go back to when natural systems were functional and and, and as I say, worked as a, a whole healthy system in balance, then there was no issue with, with you know, emissions because ultimately, it, 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 yeah, it, it balanced itself. So essentially, you had uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. It was taken up by plants photosynthesizing and it's sequestered into the soil into into very stable forms and of course over the you know thousands of years that would then be put into fossil fuels and sort of locked away deep 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 down and but the cycling co2 the stuff that's sort of in and out is is it's a currency of life you know we've got this very negative idea about co2 but actually it's what we're made of it's what your apples made of it's cows are made of it so they're taking in through the things the green plants are eating or we're eating and then we're eating animals that have eaten green plants you know the co2s that are coming through the system and then we're slightly you know breathing it out uh, as co2 again uh, and methane is just a slightly different way of that process happening so you know um in a very healthy system like I say, CO2 would be taken up by the plants, put into soil structures, uh, and then eventually eaten and then released in a cycle. But methane also is taken up. Um, there's, there's, there's various methods of, of sort of uh, oxidizing methane. There's methanotrophs in the soil that oxidize it in the soil. There is the hydroxyl ion pathway, which is kind of with moisture and ozone there's a chemical reaction that happens that kind of cleanses it and then turns it back into cot which will then be taken up by plants so there's this kind of whole system function that just works completely and and it worked for a very long time and we had herbivores in the system we had huge herds all over the you know the world of different um grazing animals all belching methane and it was getting reabsorbed and and and, and balanced within the system and the climate was very stable and in those climates that are very covered in vegetation there's lots of mechanisms that keep the climate cool including you know keeping soil covered so it doesn't get very hot it could be 40 degrees hotter on a on a bare soil than it can under vegetation you know big trees can be like have this incredible cooling effect they're like um you know they just they cool they cool through that process of transpiration and under you can just feel it when you're under a tree it's you know in the hot sunny weather it's just that's why animals go under there it's 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 it has that cooling effect and so it's not re-radiating heat back out into the atmosphere which is having that heating effect you know it cleanses the the, the vegetation cleanses um heat ha- you know heat hazes and there's just many many mechanisms we have that um tropical effect where you get kind of heat windows where you you get humidity building up during the day and then there's a thunderstorm and that creates a big radiation window which means that cools through the night and all these very natural processes that all work together um in perfect harmony and then what we've really done is we've come in and we've decoupled that system so we have taken those herbivores we've shot the wild ones um and we've put them into you know 
over, over hundreds of years in various different ways, essentially we've taken those herbivores, we've changed them into domestic livestock, and then we've housed them. So rather than having that whole system cleansing system, we've then decided that we're going to plough the soil that's exposing the microbes, that's releasing the carbon to the atmosphere again. It's heating the planet, having bare soil. So the oxidization of the methane can't be effective because you haven't got the methanotrophs in the soil. You haven't got the oxidization through the moisture, transpiration through the trees, the plants. So, and you've got heat hazes that are preventing, you know, they're sort of dimming the sunlight. So they're reducing how much oxidation can happen. CO2 can't be sequestered into that bare soil because there's no plants um, photosynthesizing. And then you're growing the plants through the short season. Uh, and then you're shipping them using fossil fuels that you've taken out of long stored ancient carbon. Um, and then you're using all of those heavy, you know, ancient carbon inputs through fertilizers and, uh, all the chemistry we use to try and keep our crops safe. And you're taking that product to the animals that are housed. Those animals are belching methane, but they're not in an environment that's taking it out again. And then that manure is being stored in huge piles so that that's releasing methane. And ultimately, you've then got a very different system, you know, that isn't regulating itself. So, you know, it's not the animals that have done that it's we we've done that <laughs> we've we've decided to go from a system which was balanced uh and, and decouple it into the system that's completely out of balance and we've now we're suffering the consequences with with that you know but it's not just about carbon we've then used a reductionist paradigm and the way that we have you know run our governmental systems and the way that we account for things and we've tried to fit a natural system into that and we've decided that we'll calculate carbon and give that a number and methane's got a different number and and all we need to do is just look at everything and give it a number and then reduce the the overall output well that's that's not how nature works and if we want to leverage how our climate was originally cooled through nature through the periods that had huge amounts of vegetation and gigantic ferns and and uh, and sequestered all that carbon and methane out of the atmosphere so that we had the climate that we now have if we want to then leverage those same processes to try and you know rescue us now then yeah we've got to come up with a different way of looking at how this all works and it's not going to be through mathematical calculations although that might get us off the ground but ultimately we have to, to leverage whole system function and that's going to take a, a different paradigm yeah absolutely um, thank you for that. That was, uh, you know, really well explained. Um, and it makes me think about the, we have an awful lot of discussion these days about veganism as a movement towards better health, but also for, towards better decisions for the climate and then the welfare of the animals. And I think these are very important discussions because there are some terrible situations that we put our animals into with regarding welfare but I think we're not looking at the full picture to simply promote veganism. Um, personally, I think that we need to broaden the view of this and see how the animals integrate into the land and into our diets also. And I wondered if you could share a few thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. And and again, it comes back to this whole system thing, doesn't it? And And I think veganism is incredibly important movement. I think vegetarianism, anything that cares about animals and cares about the environment is incredibly important so it's a step towards uh, you know getting towards a holistic way of looking at things and 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 a very necessary step 
but it's a partial view of a bigger picture, I think. And um, and sometimes when it's taken out of context, it can end up being negative and, and counterproductive because it becomes very divisive. And, you know, we get, we get a lot of anger around the conversation. And what's very true is that we're doing animal agriculture in, in ways that is absolutely unacceptable and must stop, in my opinion. And that has been my kind of life's work is trying to get to a point where we, we can move away from that that model, which is utterly wrong. So I am completely with people that are trying to move us in that direction. Where I think that things fall down is that we're, we're assuming, again, we're using that reductionist way of looking at things. We're assuming that we can just calculate the impact of animals based on math- mathematical models. And we, we can assume that it's a very simple thing that people shouldn't eat meat because it's bad for the health, when in fact that's not simple at all. You know, we've become kind of top dog in in the, the natural system, essentially the kind of dominant species because we were eating a diet that included meat. People across the world would be different, eating different amounts of meat and um, some parts of the world we can get very good nutrition from a predominantly plant-based diet in other parts of the world it's going to be more meat heavy fat heavy um you know ultimately it's going to depend on the on the environment and that and that is a really important point in its own right and similarly similarly as we discussed each individual is just epigenetically different you know some people will just do better on certain diets so it's not that we're trying to sort of suggest people shouldn't have the choice and for their own health it's completely up to them but but natural systems don't, you know, you don't separate natural systems out into animals or plants. That is just not something that happens. You've got a system, um, an ecosystem is a plant photosynthesizing, putting, you know, carbon through its roots into the soil food web. The whole fertility of that plant depends on everything eating each other. It depends on bacteria absorbing nutrients from the rock. It depends on the protozoa eating the bacteria and then releasing through the decay and necronomas and, and sort of excretions of those organisms, the plant gets fed. That's just death and decay at a small microscopic level, but they're all living creatures. And then those plants will be then eaten by an animal and um, balanced by an animal. The insects that are eating the plants will be regulated by, you know, predation and wasps. And the whole system is utterly intertwined and, and balanced through the interaction between plants and animals. So to think that we can come along and say that we are only going to eat from one of those groups and, you know, we're only going to eat from plants, but that's not going to impact animals is is just a lack of understanding about whole system function, and I think that's where we get into trouble. Um, you know, the, even the idea that we can have, you know, vegan compost and all of this. You know, where do we decide what animal counts? Where where do we decide that? You know, what value we give to a life? Um, you know, in actual fact, you can feed dozens of people from a beef cow with one life, but um, you know, plant if you're spraying to protect it you're killing thousands of different species of you know wildflowers as what we call weeds or you know insect pests that we are basically it's your biodiversity so what where do we draw the line what, what has a value does an insect have a value does a microorganism have a value as a life you know to me i don't see any way that you could possibly segregate that so I think it comes back to the the reverence of the living system and and ultimately we've moved away from that and that's where it's gone horribly wrong but we need in my opinion to move back to this sort of seeing yourself as part of the system and valuing everything within that system so that we understand where we're getting our food from how it's been grown how it's been reared how it's been killed if that's what you choose to eat um and and we 
value and make sure all of that is in balance and done well. Um, and when we, I think that's the only way forward um, is to sort of for everybody to get a proper understanding of how functional ecosystems work and not thinking that we can suddenly make a decision like I don't want to eat meat therefore I'm off the hook I don't need to worry about where, where my vegetables come from even though that it could be some of the most toxic farming that is producing those and often is in fact um, everything that we do to grow our food needs to work better and it needs to work together and if you choose not to eat an animal that's totally fine um, but ultimately, your vegetables are not going to be functional and full of nutrients if that hasn't been part of a whole system with everything from microscopic to macro animals in, in that system. Before we continue with Caroline, there's a lot of info to take on board with these discussions. And I realised that that might leave you with as many questions as it does answers. So I'd like to find ways that we can work together back and forth to keep building on our understanding. If you have questions, then let me know. It's going to help guide the extra resources that I'll add to the website, and I'll pick out one or two to highlight in next week's episode. So your questions will help build the resources, and the resources will help build our understanding. Get involved with both, either at the website wearecarbon.earth or by following over on Instagram at wearecarbon.earth Whilst it's clear that the benefits of regenerative agriculture are becoming recognised, it still leaves the challenge of rolling out these practices on a larger scale. My talk with Caroline continues with this as a focus as she shares her point of view on what's needed to move things forward and why in the long run it's regenerative approaches that will probably make the most sense for our pockets too. I'm thinking about the um, the picture that you're painting here and we're, we're talking about regeneration occurring through the support of biodiversity and all of the relationships that come from that healthy ecosystem that are building up to um, this system of exchange of nutrition and of water um, between everything from the plant and the microbe to the plant and the larger animals. This is a very upside down look at the way that we currently farm and treat our land. It is essentially using biodiversity itself to replace inputs that are chemical and that are manufactured. And this, when we're doing it, if we're going to be successful at making a huge shift at a very large scale, which is essentially what we need to do, that needs to incorporate the interests of large corporations because that's the only way that we're going to make really large leaps forward is to have everybody's interest taken on board. Do you have any um, scope on this? Can you see within your work that large corporations are interested in making the changes and going in this new direction? Yeah, it's a great question. And I ponder on it a lot. And I am involved in some fairly big um, projects involving large corporations who are looking at, you know, over a, a long period, transitioning, potentially transitioning their supply chains and I do a lot of thinking about whether it's right or wrong to be involved in that. I think ultimately where I've got to with it is that in a whole system, 
which incorporates kind of everything, we're going to get some large scale suppliers in the future. In an ideal world, you know, we've got this lovely idea that we could go back to kind of truly localized systems where everybody's eating within their region and it's all appropriate for who's living there. And, and, and I hope, I really genuinely hope we can move towards that. But I think ultimately we've gone through periods of having supermarkets and large supply chains and we're not going to be able to completely get rid of that. I think we need to kind of work with those people to try and do the best we can within that. So ultimately I want to kind of have influence on that process so that it doesn't just get simplified and reduced and turned back into something very conventional. I want to try in as far as I possibly can to make sure that we're guiding those companies when they're designing their regenerative systems so that we can we can use those principles rather than just prescriptions again so i feel like it's important i'm involved so that's why i do get involved um so i think it is important because ultimately even if you're not getting a truly holistic um application of regenerative agriculture let's say where you know in a truly holistic application you would be looking at the welfare of the animals you'd be looking at the people involved in that in that whole system uh, as well as just you know improving soil health and in biodiversity um we might not get all the way there but if all we can do is have um principle based farming methods which are improving the soil um reducing vastly how many inputs are used you know re- really sort of almost wiping out the need for fertilizer in many cases getting rid of pesticides um and increasing biodiversity by you know incorporating lots of practices and principles that you know are are doing great things to to make sure our insect life is coming back our bird life's coming back and we're regulating our health problems and we can reduce antibiotics we can reduce worm use you know getting our dung beetles back in the system all of those are really important things if all we can manage to do with the farms that are in these big you know supplying these big corporations is shift that then the whole process, I think the most important thing for me is that the farmers doing that will see that healthy system coming back and they all have their hands in the soil. They'll be doing their monitoring because they have to monitor their outcomes to prove that they're regenerative. They'll be seeing the infiltration tests. They'll be seeing how much health of the animals are. So that in itself will shift that thinking and and those people to be able to understand whole system function better. So Okay, it's not perfect, and and it probably never will be, but it is a huge step in the in the right direction. Um, you know, it's improving watersheds, it's doing all of that stuff that, that's beyond just calculating carbon. So, it's incredibly important. And what, of course, companies that have scale, um, you know, just a just a slight shift across their supply chain would make an enormous difference for the environment and the health of the and the quality of the products that they're outputting. So. I think it's important. I think it's really important that we make sure that it's not greenwashed and simplified and reduced, and they're not just following a set of prescriptions. So, I work a lot with these big organisations um, to try and make sure that the yeah it's outcome based. We're sticking to principles. It's context. You know, it's about the context of the farm, so that we're, we're at least sort of making sure that that's true to the ethos of regenerative. Um, it's not going to be, as I say, this this completely holistic way of doing things but there'll be other people that are doing that holistically and and ultimately the whole thing needs to be a web and complex so all of it will knit together to some degree we might end up with lots of different supply networks supplying these big companies rather than it being a supply chain so there's there's a lot of work to do and ultimately also we need a mindset shift in the people that are running these 
organizations and these these big companies because they can't truly embrace and accommodate uh, a more complex supply web unless they themselves change their structures and how they how they you know demand uh, you know the demands they put up on those farmers so there's a lot of work to be done from the thinking of the of the management teams and the supply people as well which I'm, I am keen to get involved in and again that's that kind of same coaching role so yeah the organizations need to run differently um the the farmers themselves need to work with principles and, and be very con- you know unique to and have their own context and be outcome based not just follow a tick box of i am doing this practice you know it's much more complex than that but yes i think it's important we do engage because we can change such a lot in terms of scale and then we can hopefully move the whole way that everybody's thinking in the right direction so that the the next step will be something much more holistic. And you've already touched on um, earlier on about the need for farmers to be subsidised in order to make their work profitable. And in fact, this is one of the largest areas of subsidy over all of the different industries that we have. So this sort of it, it provides an opportunity potentially for the money to be directed towards change and towards regeneration and new practices. I wondered if within your work and your position that you're in, if you can uh, give us any indication that the government are in fact taking regeneration and regenerative practices seriously and if they're moving towards holistic view um, when it comes to supporting farming. So I think there's, there's been some big steps forward. There's been a lot more interest um, in soil health. That's becoming an actual thing people are talking about, even in mainstream agriculture now. That's a huge step forward. There's lots of talk about getting towards more of an outcomes-based, paid-for-outcomes type approach. I think we're not there yet by a long by a long chop. And I think ultimately it comes back to do we rely upon government to pay people to do things or do we try and get people to become more resilient for their own reasons? And I'm much more focused. I, I get less involved in the kind of like trying to influence policy or understanding what's happening at that end and much more involved in trying to empower people at the grassroots to say, okay, we're going to probably have to have some support, but let's not gear our entire system around trying to find that support. Let's find what's right for us on our on our farming system. Let's try and get rid of our input so we don't have as, you know, so we've got more profit in the system. Let's try and maintain our output, but yeah, without having to buy the fertilizers, the feed, the mineral blocks, the wormers, all the things that is currently costing us the money and taking our profits away. Let's try and get a farming system that's got incredibly nutrient-dense output with nothing but, as I said, sunshine and rainfall. And then whatever we get on top of that, whether it's from a diversified income from, um, you know, a bed and breakfast or or whatever, or an extra wage coming in, um, or whether it's from a, a farm subsidy or an environmental payment, then it's on the top. And And of course, it might be that we can't get as far as we'd like to ultimately we're not working with a level playing field and i think that's important is that you know if we're if we're then having to those farmers are then having to compete with people that are subsidized or have vast scale the, the, the way that we don't or don't have the environmental regulations that we do then that's not fair so we need to do a lot more work on making sure that we're not undermining our our farmers um by bringing cheap imports and um, and flooding the market with that, but you know, ultimately, I do believe very strongly in trying to get farmers for their own reasons and to become more resilient, rather than just trying to incentivize through 
a new payment you know mechanism so i guess that's where my work is focused um so i think we're, we're slightly moving in the same direction but i think until we again until we get to the point where people are taking responsibility and saying well actually i just want to be free from the system or as free as I possibly can be, I want to to make my system work the best it can for for my land base and my unique context. Then, you know, um, and then hopefully they can find environmental payments and other things to support them that will fit into that rather than the opposite way around. I think that's important. Thank you. So I'm I'm in Lincolnshire. Um, that's where I live, and I see around me these monocultures of rapeseed and. Um, corn um, just vast vast fields of the same crop this is our conventional approach to agriculture and when we look at that we recognize that we couldn't feed the local people with what the land is used for around us and we travel the country and it's very much the same picture that makes things simple from the farming point of view but this is um, again we're going back to that complexity of using a whole system approach where we actually look at the land and its individual qualities to create the output. What what does that land suit? So that's going to be a different picture in a different county, in a different country, in a different altitude. And what I'm trying to get at here is within the regenerative approach, within your work um, in particular, you're looking at suiting the production to the available land, to the available resource there. And that means a different picture for every location. Do you feel that that moves us towards an opportunity for local land to feed local people? And do you think that's an ambition that we should be working towards? Absolutely. And I get highly frustrated by this sort of global approach to trying to deal with these complex uh, issues of, of food production and health and, and all of the rest of it and yeah ultimately um we've got to get to a point where we look we relocalize and of course we're not going to get completely there and that's where the these big food companies and corporations come in but even they could do a, a great deal towards making things unique and, and appropriate for, for the region and trying to reduce the the uh, the distance things are traveling and all of that so yeah if you look back to kind of how humans you know emerged is that we that's exactly what we would have done and we would have lived with the local environment we would have worked with what could be grown or hunted or you know foraged in that area and our epigenetics were sort of molded by that so of course we are healthier when we're eating that sort of that sort of diet um which is why we see such issues when people sort of move distance you know from across the world and and then eat a completely different diet you know that's where, where a lot of these issues come from so um, you know, we but we are in a modern situation where people do move all over the place. So I think ultimately it's a case of finding what works for you uniquely health-wise, but having a, um, a diverse range of of what can be grown. So looking at, um, you know, is it a mountainous region where it's mostly grown grass that you just couldn't grow, you couldn't get a tractor up there, you know, that, that's going to be more of a pastoralist and meat-dominant meat diet. Um, you know, if you've got huge areas like Lincolnshire where you can grow crops, then okay, you you might be doing that. But you would look at a mixed rotation. You would be looking at in integrating animals to improve the fertility over a period. You know, good old mixed farming. Um, you know, so you've got dairy, you've got meat, you've got different range of different crops. Some things that are improving the soil. You know, some things that are taking out a little bit more of a combination of vegetables and grains. So. 
you know, again, it's it's what's um, appropriate for the region. Some areas have, you know, are drier, um, the dry lands of the world. We can improve that drastically, but, you know, ultimately there will be areas that just have less rainfall. And um, so, so that that will have a different range of foods that are appropriate. And again, the culture will will sort of um, adapt to uh, the epigenetic effects. Will you know adapt so that that that's appropriate? That's what's amazing about humans. That's what's amazing about the a healthy gut microbiome is it buffers so that you can digest all these different types of foods. That's just um, remarkable about why humans have become so successful. So, if we're in an environment, we're taking up those organisms that are then developing because we're eating certain foods, then that is that is allowing us to get nutrition from a whole range of different food products. So, yeah, I don't know how far we'll ever get down that road, but I would certainly like to get to the point where the majority of what we're eating is from a region uh, grown in a regenerative way that's balancing the the, the system, you know. And, um, and then it might be that we, you know, obviously we're not going to give up completely the foods that we've grown to love that come from across the world or could be grown in other parts, but that's done better. And it's less of our diet as a, as a proportion, I suppose. That's where I'd like to get to. And I think I'd just like to briefly touch about resilience within our food supply, because we we seem to be having problems from every angle at the moment, whether that be because of transportation, because of outbreaks of viruses, um, people and animals, Um and also weather conditions. We have droughts. We have unexpected flooding. This is all contributing to to what essentially is um, shortages on the shelf, and then the potential for rising prices and this headache of um, you know how how can we feed a population if there the, are these ongoing complexities and uncertainties. And I'm wondering if. There's a few words you could say with regards to regenerative approaches that currently are going to be considerably more expensive. To to purchase grass-fed organic meat, for example, is more expensive um, for comparing one weight to another. But in the long term, do you consider that they are going to offer us more resilience and more stability? Yes, definitely. And the way that we try to redefine things is um, we look at, we, we call it redefining productivity. So so basically, if you just simply focus on yields, and again, this is the mechanistic worldview where you're, you're comparing how many calories we can produce from a, you know, monoculture system compared to anything else, you know, and it's, it's the wrong way to look at it. We need to look at the the buffering that we can create across the year. So if you've got a healthy water cycle, um where the plants are growing all year round and you can retain every bit of the water that falls on that land. The plants are never, you know, going dry and reducing production and we can keep growing right the way through the winter because we've got good aerated soils that are not getting saturated. Then over the whole year and over the over 10 years, our production is going to be off the charts greater than if we've got a monoculture system, we get a bumper crop, but then the you know, it's dry. Um, we've got, you know, drought and we're not growing anything in between. Um, and similarly, if we've got, um, you know, nutrients that are just available all year round at any point because we've got a healthy soil food web and the, anim- the, the, the animals and the plants don't need interventions and medications and fertilizers because we've got all the nutrients coming through that system and keeping it resilient and healthy, then you're not going to get a bad year for crops where something wipes out the whole thing. Plants are particularly susceptible to poor nutrition. So if we haven't got a functional soil food web, 
the plants aren't able to make strong, strong structures. They're not able to make those waxy coatings that protect against insect pests. They're they're floppy. They fall down in hail and rain more easily. They rot in wet more easily. They're prone to diseases because they can't produce their own secondary metabolites, the chemicals that prevent that sort of thing happening. So ultimately, we've just got a very, yeah, uh, the opposite to resilience. We've just got a very vulnerable situation where we're prone to all sorts of things going wrong. And we're doing that in the face of climate change, which is going to bring the biggest challenges um, um, in the future. We're going to have more heavy rain. We're going to have more high winds. We're going to have heavy hailstorms. You know, we're going to have long periods of drought. So we need to have more resilience, not less. So ultimately, we need to get, again, get away from this idea of just looking at, oh, how much protein is in that soy crop um, to, okay, how much how many different nutrients of a high quality can we get that's going to supply the full nutritional range of needs for that community across the board, uh, across the year, year after year, without all of those expensive inputs? Now, ultimately, those products surely are going to be more consistent in price than over a 20, 30-year period. Then products that are very prone to fluctuations, have a bad crop year, the price goes through the roof, uh, fertilizer prices go up, the price goes through the roof, you know, all of those different things are going to affect that. So I think ultimately, if we're going to get not only resilience in, in healthiness of the system, but, you know, resilience in, and stability in our pricing, then I, I can't help thinking that eventually regenerative systems will be producing cheaper food because these other things are just going to get wildly expensive. Uh, and in a good year, it might be a bit cheaper, but in a bad year, it'll be really expensive. And over the 10-year period it'll even out and and hopefully will you know it'll just make more sense yeah it sounds like there's just so many solutions that come out of just looking after the land taking these broader holistic views um and it's it's very inspiring and it's very encouraging and I think that your work covers so many areas. I wonder if you could share a few thoughts on what you think the biggest challenges are for us going forward. I think it comes back to the mindset shift again, which is why my work um, has evolved in its own right. And I, I've gone from thinking of myself as a you know a regenerative consultant that goes and deals with farmers to more of a somebody that's teaching the principles of regeneration and then coaching in the mindset shift that's required and that could be a farmer or it could be somebody running a big business um ultimately what i think or it could be a citizen at home just wanting to make better food choices for themselves and their health and their family so i guess i see my role changing a little bit into just how do we best advance people's thinking so that it, it can accommodate this complexity and 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 that, as I say that's going to be in everything that I do now whether it's writing an article uh, about any topic I'm trying to introduce a way of making it people understand how whole system function just works better and to to move us out of this you know mechanistic rational mindset um, to, and advance our thinking a little bit because it's going to require all of us to do that. It doesn't matter. The farmers could be the best holistic thinkers, you know, ever. But if people don't value why we're doing that and and, and don't value that those types of products because you know that we know that that's better for their own whole system function in their health, and then we've got companies that can't change their siloed approach to how they run everything efficiently and from a command and control center 
um, and that doesn't work with these new farmers, you know, that that's not going to work. So it has to be across the board. We've got to try and shift the thinking everywhere. And that's going to take a, a different approach in, in, in a range of ways. So I think, yeah, so the ultimate barrier, I think, is, is how we look at the world and, and how we, we do like this mechanistic rational model. And I can see that changing, but there's there's a lot of work to do. So I think that's that's the next big step. The more people that can think differently and teach others to think differently and use examples of how whole system function works, the more that will will kind of move the whole thing forward. Yeah, thank you. I have really enjoyed speaking. You you are so full of information and just that energy and um, attitude towards all of this is exactly what you've just said we need. You're a, a wonderful example of somebody that's going out there and demonstrating and making this possible. I, I would just want to say thank you, firstly, for joining me today, but also, is there other different ways that people can learn more from yourself and interact with your work? Well, thanks, Helen. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and and have the chance to explain things in in that wide and rambling way that I tend to do things. But um, so I guess um, we've got a few different websites to visit. Uh, the Meat Business, which is if you're a, a concerned and an interested citizen who is wanting to influence how ecosystems are functioning by how you you know by buying food and engaging then primal meats uh, www.primalmeats with an s on the end.co.uk and if you get on our mailing list i write weekly on there and i tend to write some things that are a little bit about meat and sustainability but i tend to also do a lot of my kind of whole system thinking about lifestyle and how how it all works together and how you're you know um what you do and how you engage in in the world will influence the management of it so that that's one way of of engaging if you're a farmer or a landowner or an estate owner then roots of nature my other sort of consultancy website is the probably the place to go because that's kind of the umbrella for all of my work and that's um rootsofnature.co.uk and then specifically uh, the upland work if you like the the community interest company wilderculture um wilderculture.com is uh, the organization that we use to sort of progress what does this look like in the uplands what does this look like as a combination with rewilding and in areas that are are, are, are rugged and vast and and they, we, we can't easily uh, use electric fencing and some of the more sort of um, well-known ways of doing regenerative agriculture that's where we're exploring all of that so you might be interested in that too and again I write in all those different domains and and uh, and have an email that goes out regularly so you can engage in, in any of those ways. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, thank you again and best of luck with everything that you're working on. Thanks ever so much, Helen, for the opportunity just to talk to you. And thank you so much for joining me with this first episode of We Are Carbon. In episode two, I have the pleasure of discussing regeneration with Finian Makepeace. As co-founder of Kiss the Ground, Finian is wonderfully articulate at helping us to understand the value of healthy land and soil within our climate battles. If you'd like some homework and haven't yet seen it, go check out Kiss the Ground, the movie, prior to our chat. You'll find it on Netflix. And to keep up to date with We Are Carbon, be sure to subscribe on the website or follow along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.